our final Friday evening together. We will meet again tomorrow. We hope you can join us for our message then. Our last meeting we met, we talked about uh, death. Today we're going to look at another aspect, but let's just mention the, the phrase we used last time, the dead rest in the grave till they are raised, was our last message that we dealt with on Wednesday evening. You want to read that with me? The dead rest in the grave till they are raised. Today we want to consider another important topic. In fact, it is very interesting. I just picked this up. This was uh, November, uh, December 2005, three months ago. Big title, In Search of Heaven. The well-known television reporter Barbara Walters interviews true believers to find answers. An entire article in Reader's Digest about that. Interesting, as you look, you see people are interested in what's happening and what's going to happen. I found a Time Magazine article, The Bible and the Apocalypse, Why More Americans Are Reading and Talking About the End of the World. People are really focused on that. Now, there are many statements in that article, and I just want to read to you a few. That article came out six months or so, eight months, I believe it was, after, um, this was July 1, 2002, shortly after what? September 11. And so this was the article talks about uh, the books called The Left Behind Series. The terrorist attacks not only deepened the interest among Christians fluent in the language of Armageddon and Apocalypse, it broadened it as well to an audience that had never paid much attention to the predictions of the doomsday prophet Nostradamus or been worried about an epic battle that marks the end of time or for that matter read the book of Revelation. Since September 11, people from the cooler corners of Christianity, I'm quoting from Time Magazine, July 1, 2002, have begun asking questions about what the Bible has to say about how the world ends. The book of Revelation has always held its mysteries. But for millions of people, the code of Revelation was broken in 1995, this is Time Magazine saying, when LeHay, Tim LeHay, and Jenkins, Jerry Jenkins, published Left Behind, a novel of Earth's history. If you've kept up with the news, they plan to have a 14-part series. Uh, Time Magazine says, the interest in the end times is no fringe phenomenon. Listen carefully. About half of the Left Behind readers are evangelicals which suggests there is a broader audience of people who are having this conversation. Time CNN poll founds, finds that more than one-third of Americans say they are paying more attention now to the, how the news might relate to the end of the world. Fully 59% say they believe the events in Revelation, almost 60%, the events in Revelation are going to come true. Some of that interest is fueled by faith, some by fear, some by imagination, but all three, faith, fear, and imagination, are fed by the Left Behind series. Those books have had a major, had had a major impact across the board. I have a picture here that you'll see on the screen from Newsweek magazine, May 24, 2004, and it says, The New Prophets of Revelation. Why their biblical left-behind novels have sold 62 million copies and counting. These two authors are now considered America's best-selling writers, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Their books, movies, CDs, greeting cards, games, children's books are having an alarming impact on people. According to Newsweek article, a poll taken by them, Newsweek, shows that 55% of Americans in general 
Christian, agnostic, Jew, Muslim, you name it, 55% in general, think, I'm quoting, that the faithful will be taken up to heaven in the rapture. It's a widespread belief. Now I said alarming impact. Why do I say alarming? Because of the focus that people have. They focus on the land of Israel specifically. In fact, one evangelical from Australia, a faithful believer, was so anxious to get the Lord to come, for Jesus to come, in their understanding of Scripture, that he went to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the sacred buildings of the Muslims, and he set the Al-Aqsa Mosque alight, hoping to burn it down so that they could go and destroy it and rebuild the third temple right there. He wasn't successful, even though he tried. Listen to what Time Magazine says, the first article I mentioned before, To some evangelical readers, the left-behind books are more than a spiritual guide. They are a political agenda. And then later on it says, This helps to explain why some Christian leaders, I'm quoting, have also pressed their case in the Bush White House as if their salvation depended upon it. It's a serious phenomenon, uh, just looking at that. But why is it serious? Let me share with you three, and I'm simplifying here, the three main tenets of the Left Behind series, the rapture theory. Number one, they say, this is a secret rapture. It can occur at any moment. There are no signs predicting it. Only those who are raptured up to heaven will know it. Those left behind will f- simply find their personal effects of those raptured. Uh, their watch maybe, their dentures or whatever. Okay? That's what you'll find left behind. Then you'll know that the person's been raptured. You wouldn't know it except for what's left behind. Secondly, After the rapture, there will be a dreadful time of persecution called the tribulation. But don't worry, because all of God's true believers will be in heaven. They won't have to suffer. And number three, number three, those who miss the rapture, and remember, 55% of Americans in general believe that, those who miss the, the rapture will have a second chance to be saved. Let me read to you just a minute. By the way, uh, Jerry Falwell, this came out just uh, last year. Jerry Falwell says, talking about this rap, these Left Behind series, he says it has a major impact. In terms of its impact on Christianity, Left Behind is probably greater than that of any other book in modern times outside of the Bible. Major impact, the, this whole theory. And so I went to the bookstore one day and I bought a book called... Are we living in the end times? Now, I didn't buy the Left Behind series. I went and I found this book by LaHaye and Jenkins, published in 1999. I just took a photocopy of a few pages because my suitcases were fully loaded and I couldn't carry, carry many books. I brought these photocopies. And this book, the authors, LaHaye and Jenkins, say, we are not dealing here with fiction. This is what we believe. The Left Behind series, obviously, are a fictionalized story. And so in this book, they say this is actual prophetic interpretation. And I've been reading and looking at the book. And in this, then, they explain what they believe. This is what they say. Uncounted millions of men, women, boys, and girls will recognize that although they missed the rapture and thus will have to endure the terrors of the tribulation, yet God is still calling them, wooing them to his side. We believe these tribulation saints could well number into the billions with a B. And do not forget, every one of these new believers will have been left behind after the rapture precisely because he or she had to that point rejected God's offer of salvation. Yet even then the Lord 
will not give up on them. Now, that's the theory, and they continue on page 240 of their book, and they say, if you don't accept Jesus, and he comes, the rapture happens, firstly, remember, that's the belief, and then you have time, and then they say Jesus comes, if you haven't accepted Jesus by the time he comes, don't worry, you'll have a third chance. Very clear. I'll read to you from page 240. And when do you have the third chance? They say during the millennium. The first 100 years of the millennium, you have a chance to repent once more. Here it is, page 240. We believe that believers will live throughout the entire period, but the unregenerate, the sinners, will be given 100 years to repent and accept Christ. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. So here's the question. Now, please, don't for a moment think I'm being critical of the evangelicals. I'm just warning you that sometimes there are interesting theories there, and I want you to keep an open mind and to dig into the Word. And you have to say, what does the Bible teach? Let's make sure we go back to the Word. Very, very important. Uh, I'm just cautioning you about these dangers because I was guilty too, okay? I say I plead guilty. Why? I remember how sincere I was, but sincerely wrong. There have been times that we ourselves have dug into the Word, and we haven't seen it in all its clarity. We've brought into the Bible ideas from outside. Now, if I'm going to step on a toe or two, please pull your feet back quickly. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12. I'm going to give you an example of what I used to do because I want you to know that all of us, we love the Lord, but sometimes in our enthusiasm, what do we do? We do eisegesis. I call it enthusiastic eisegesis. Eisegesis is the technical term for reading into the Bible what isn't there. We are supposed to be exegetes, read out of the Bible what is there, and then apply it to our lives and apply it to the world. But all of us, I say I plead guilty, that's what I did. I remember preaching in Korea with translation. And here I was sharing it, but it was eisegesis. I was putting onto the Bible. I spent more time reading the newspaper and Time magazine. I use time here as an illustration only, okay? We're going to get into the Word. But I spent my time, and I came with all the Time magazine, Newsweek, and everything, and I said, here is the fulfillment of the prophecy. But I was looking outside there instead of digging deep here. The lesson for all of us. And so here is my guilty plea. When I got to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, I read this verse. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And I said, folks, we are living in that day when many shall run to and fro. And I began to talk about space travel and how fast cars go and jet travel. And I was in Korea and I could talk about all the statistics and all of those things. The fast, the, the incredible improvement in Travel around the world. Okay? And then I went on and I talked about the increase of scientific knowledge. Now, this was almost 30 years ago, by the way. There were no iPods. There, were, there was no internet. This is way back in the dark ages, and I thought we were way on the cutting edge. Okay? You know what I'm trying to say. And I was talking about all of these things until deeper study and listening to people saying, wait a minute. Let's not take things out of context. What is the immediate context? Now, we're not talking about additional, secondary, expanded interpretation. You always must go and say, what does the Bible actually say and mean? Let's go to that. What is it talking about? Verse 4 says, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book. And, of course, 
This is when Daniel was alive. That's what the angel said. Until the time of the end. Now, when you study the history and when you study the prophecies of Daniel, we haven't had a chance to do that here, but I'm hoping that you will have a chance to dig into that, do some Bible studies, because here, for example, is a Bible study, our day in Bible prophecy, this whole study is on Daniel chapter 2. Of course, you know, Daniel has many prophecies, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, even right here, that book I was just referring to, Are We Living in the End Times? Lahay and Jenkins too. They got some very good truths there, by the way. I'm not saying they, they've missed everything. They show that the prophecies did come true, going back to Nebuchadnezzar. There are some wonderful things. So we have to go back and say, is, does this line up with Scripture? So they have some wonderful things. I don't want to minimize that. And I don't want you to think for a moment that I, that I think I'm the only one who understands the Bible. There are many wonderful, solid, Bible-believing Christians in other faiths. I'm glad there's one person who agrees with me. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Let's repeat that, what I just said. There are many sincere people who love Jesus Christ, Bible-believing Christians in other faiths. I'm glad more of you believe. Okay? I'm not downing that. I'm saying we must all be careful. I'm here confessing my own enthusiastic eisegesis by simply reading into the text what isn't there. What is the text talking about? Seal the book till the time of the end. Ah, here's your hint. If it's sealed, what's going to happen at the end of the time of the end? What's going to happen? Opened. And when the book is opened to understanding of people, that's what happened. When you study chronology, you study the way the book of Daniel itself identifies what's going to happen. The time of the end happens towards the end of the 18th century, chronologically speaking. And there have been scores of careful Bible scholars for centuries who recognized that principle. And the time of the end generally is understood by, by the way, this is way before there was a Seventh-day Adventist, you know that. 18th century, there was no such a church. But there were scores of Bible students in many denominations who recognized the time frame. And at that time, they began to dig into the book of Daniel. And as they dug and dug further and further, they saw things. So what were they doing? If you think about the way the Bible was written on scrolls, think for a moment. Okay, how do you read? Daniel chapter 2. You've got to roll. If you roll at the whole scroll of Daniel, it goes pretty far. I bought a scroll in Jerusalem some years ago. So here you're in Daniel 2. And you say, wait a minute. This prophecy reminds me of what I read over here in Daniel 7. It's the same thing. Medo-Persia. Yes. And Daniel 8 repeats it. And here we up in Daniel 11 and 12. And you say, wait a minute. That reminds me of what's over here. And so what are you doing? Guess what you're doing, folks? That's exciting. Jesus is going to come. Wow. I see it right here again. What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? You're running to and fro. You are. And where is the knowledge going to increase? The knowledge of the book of Daniel. And that's when the knowledge of the book of Daniel was explosive. Historically, it's proven. You can see that in a volume called The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, written by a, a serious scholar. Volumes. So I would challenge you, make sure we don't take things out of context. That's the primary application. That's the primary. Now, you can expand that and come up with additional, but you've got to tell people, I'm putting my own additional explanation. The context shows it's the understanding of the book of Daniel. So, have I? you see how guilty I am, okay? 
That's what I was doing using a secondary application. That's all I want to say. Let's be careful, Bible students. I don't want to challenge you to do that this evening. So let's start getting into the Word. Let's move. And incidentally, again, there are lots of studies on this topic. I mentioned this afternoon when I was preaching, I have here five Bible studies that deal with with this essential topic I'm trying to cover this evening. So we're going to go rapidly. Do you have your safety belts on? And do you have your flying fingers ready? Let's look at the Word. If you have a pencil, I'd like you to write on some text because I would like to encourage you to go and read further at home the text I'm going to suggest to give you a fuller picture. My only caution at the beginning is be careful. Let's not take passages out of their biblical context. But I challenge you to read more carefully in the immediate context what the Word teaches. Okay, now let's turn firstly to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 24. Here is a very well-known Olivet Address. And as you notice, this evening's topic is the ultimate thanksgiving. I'm dealing here with the issue of the second coming of Christ According to some, there are at least 250, approximately 250 verses in the New Testament pointing forward to Jesus' second coming. In other words, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament talks about the second coming. It's the hope of the Christian, the blessed hope. We're looking forward to that. Matthew 24 is a beautiful section. And as we go through that today, I want to point out what this Matthew 24 deals with. Let's start right at the beginning. We're going to do some careful reading of the scripture now. Take a pencil out. This is vital. You're going to learn some, not just what's happening in the, what Jesus predicts, but also how to carefully read. And then we can see things that are clear in scripture. Verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. Magnificent temple that there was. Right? And they were almost boasting about that. Look at this temple. And what does Jesus say? Verse 2, Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now wait a minute, Jesus. What do you mean? The, The temple is where God's presence is. And for the Jew, when the temple is destroyed, what does that mean? essentially the end of the world for them, right? That's the way they understand it. Go to the next verse, verse 3, okay? So they asked, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called the Olivet Address, as he sat there, the disciples came to him privately and saying, tell us, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They put those two together because for a, for a believer that, God was present in in the temple. To say the temple is going to be down, it's going to be destroyed, means what? The end of the world. Okay? There's uh, the, These two are one concept. Very interesting. That's the way they saw things. And understandably so. You know, when, when I look at that, I say, wait a minute. Are we reading, is, are we reading the scripture carefully? Because Jesus was aware that the Jews thought that the kingdom was going to come immediately. Did you know that? Jesus was aware of that. And he cautioned them. Keep your hand in Matthew. I want to show you, Jesus was so gentle. I love the picture of the Savior we serve, don't you? He, he did it so kindly, folks, that by God's grace, I hope we can do that. Let's go to the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, we find that the Bible is very clear. Luke chapter 19, Jesus has just gone through Jericho. You remember the story of that short man? Right, who turned out to have a big heart because he was convicted that the Lord 
was Jesus was the Messiah, and then he made this confession, and at the end of the confession, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus, uh, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Salvation, wow. And, and so keep that in mind. That's the context. Read the next verse. Now, as they heard these things... He spoke another parable because he, Jesus, was near Jerusalem and because they, who's they? His disciples, the followers, thought that the kingdom of God would, would appear when? Immediately. They were expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. Parachrema is the Greek word. Immediately, at once, without delay. Luke uses this word, by the way, of the 19 times this word is used in the entire New Testament, Luke uses it 17 times. That's it. The kingdom of God is going to come right away. And what does Jesus realize? The disciples think the kingdom is going to come. Why? In fact, just skip to verse 28 quickly. Verse 28, when he said this, that's the parable. I'll come back to the parable that I'm going to talk about in a minute. When he said this, he went on going up to Jerusalem and it came to pass when he brought near to Beth, Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. He sent his disciples and you know what happened? It's called the triumphal entry. Jesus came riding in on a donkey. John chapter 12 verse 15, write it down. That's where you find the verse that says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King. And it's a reminder of Zechariah 9 verse 9, which predicted that the Messiah would come riding in on a donkey. Remember that? Zechariah 9 9, you see the prediction fulfilled, clearly stated in John 12 verse 15. So Jesus knows the triumphal entry is coming next he knows the disciples think that the kingdom is going to start when immediately so he tells them a parable let's go back now he tells them a parable verse 12 luke 19 verse 12 then he therefore he said he knew that they thought the kingdom was going to happen right away therefore he said a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return so he called his ten servants and he delivered to them ten minas and said to them do business till i come we call this a parable of the what Talents, that's right, the parable of the talents. We don't often quote the parable in Luke. We often quote the parable where? In Matthew. So let's go back to the Matthew parable. So Jesus tells them a parable to warn them. And the, who is the nobleman going to a far country, do you think? Jesus himself, that's right. Let's go back to Matthew 24. The story, the parable is also told actually in Matthew 25, the continuation of the Olivet Address. In Matthew 25, verse 14, Jesus tells the same basic parable. Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his servants and delivered his goods to them. There it is again, right? The parable. He gave one five, the another one two. Go down to verse 19. What does Jesus say? After a long time. Did you hear that? Jesus knew his disciples the Jews, the followers, were expecting the kingdom of heaven to, to come when? Immediately. And Jesus says, hold on, folks. I'm going to tell you a parable. It's going to be a long time. Okay? Long time. I went and actually checked the Greek. It says, meta, de, and then it has polun, polon, chronon. After a long period of time, extension period of time, Jesus knew that the, the second coming wasn't going to be right away. He cautioned them. He warned them. He said, this is the parable. You have the talents. Work. 
the nobleman is going to come back after a long time. So Jesus knew that. Now let's go back to chapter 24. I said we're going to give you a little tangent here. Let's go back to Matthew 24. The disciples think it's at the same time. They put the two questions together. When will these things be? The collapse of the temple? And they ask, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? They think it's the same thing. But you know when you read carefully, it becomes clear that Jesus answered it tenderly. They remembered it. They recorded it. Jesus did it in such a way that they then later on could go back and reflect. By the way, have you ever had somebody do that to you? You're excited about something and they answer it to you and you reflect later and say, you know, that's right. He did make this clear. In my excitement, I missed the message. He did make it clear so kindly. Now I understand what happened. That's what Jesus did here. He made it very clear. So what he does, they actually ask two questions, thinking it had the same meaning. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of the end? And what Jesus does now, he then separates clearly. And the language is clear. So I want you to follow with me what Jesus has done. And by the way, this solves two or three major problems. Quick example. The well-known Oxford apologist by the name of C.S. what? Lewis. You've heard of him. C.S. Lewis said this. Talking about Matthew 24, verse 34. Matthew 24, 34. C.S. Lewis talking about this passage, which, say, which says, Assuredly, Jesus speaking, I say to you, this, this generation shall, will by no means pass till away till all these things take place. Lewis said what? That verse, I'm quoting, is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. And that verse, I just quoted, is used by Christians, agnostics, sorry, by agnostics, by Jews, by Muslims and others to attack the credibility of Jesus, to attack Christianity, and to throw out the New Testament because they say, Jesus said that generation would not pass and they, they definitely did die. Wait a minute. Is Lewis right? Are the agnostics right? Let's look at the Bible carefully in context. If you've ever sung and, or written music, you know how it goes. If you write a poem in the old style, or incidentally, modern poetry, it doesn't quite fit this. But in the old style, in hymns, for example, you'll notice there's an A-B-A-B pattern. Have you noticed the old hymns? Okay. It's uh, something about by grace and then love, and then it says the, he saved the human race from above. You know, A-B-A-B. Interesting. Jesus did the same. It's in the, in the way that the, the Greek, uh, the Semitic mind, the Jewish mind worked. They went patterns A, B. Now look what he does. Jesus actually answers the question. He starts by talking about, starting with verse 4, Jesus said, now listen carefully, and I want you to take a few notes here if you have time, and can write these down and read them more at home. I'm only going to give you a few hints, whetting your appetite, to show you Jesus answered actually two questions and showed something fascinating. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Caution. So now notice, I'm going to suggest from verse 4, clear through verse 20, those 17 verses, Jesus is now focusing on the fall of Jerusalem, specifically, because he, he uses the word, these things, he's talking about close by, these things, now I know verse 19 uses the word those, it's going into the transition to the next section, okay, but those verses are focusing primarily, the primary application is on the fall of Jerusalem, for many will come in my name and say, I am the Christ and will deceive many, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, 
See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, etc., etc. And it continues, by the way, and it uses the word these, these. Fascinating. Okay? It talks about the end in verse 6. The end it talks about in verse 13. Go to verse 13. He who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world, in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, I know sometimes we've used that verse to talk about the end of time, but you know what, folks? That verse, in the context, is actually talking about the gospel being spread right there in the then-known world. And in Colossians 1.23, write this down, read it at home, Paul says, the gospel has gone to the whole world. The then known world. So this in its context is talking about that. How do I know? Because verse 15 confirms that. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are where? In Judea. Flee to the mountains. It's talking about the problems that Jerusalem will face when the temple collapses. Luke confirms that in Luke chapter 21. He says, the Roman armies will surround Jerusalem, and that first section all the way up to verse 20, even verse 20, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. It's all talking about the fall of Jerusalem. The primary application is that. So when we understand the language Jesus uses, he is not talking about the end of the world in its immediate primary application. We'll get to secondary application in a few minutes. Now, when we get to verse 21, now we get, notice the transition here. Verse 21, from verse 21 on to verse 31, 11 verses, you can see specifically now deal with the end of time. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be. End of the world. Unless those days, notice the tribulation language, he's no longer talking about these. These is when he uses for the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus says, those days. When he uses the word that or those, it goes for the end of the world. Very interesting. Different language. Those days, except those days will be shortened. No flesh will be saved but the elect. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I want to stop right there. Practical application. Watch out, folks. There are people who claim all kinds of things. I remember seeing a, uh, an ad one day in the newspaper, and it caught my attention because of the date it had on it. October 28, 1992. This came out October 7. 1992 in USA Today it was a full quarter page ad Jesus will come in the feast of trumpet October 28 1992 that happened to be Linda and I mine our 13th wedding anniversary to the very day so I couldn't help but see that said wow and so here it was and a big ad saying do not receive the mark 666 barcode on the forehead of the right hand. Watch out in fine print there. How we can, how can we prepare? And this was a predicted coming of the, of Jesus. A specific day, even though Matthew 24 is explicit saying, no man knows the day nor the hour. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So sometimes there is that danger of the enthusiastic eisegesis. Uh, coming along and we go in that direction. So be careful. There are false prophets arising, verse 24, false Christs that will try to deceive you. Be careful. 
Don't go after them. Okay? And then he talks about verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. You notice the signs we're talking about here? Clearly, the coming of the Son of Man. It will be visible. Lightning flashes. It will be sudden. Okay? It will be clear for everybody to see. Here are things coming right out of the text. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. And notice verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and we're talking about the great tribulation, and you study historically, we often refer to them in the past. We're politically correct nowadays. We don't use the term. But we used to talk about when I was growing up as the dark ages. How, how many of you remember that term? I see, yeah, I can see your age. <laughs> now, how about, what do they call it nowadays? Middle Ages, that's right, yes. Okay, Middle Ages. So, yes, the Middle Ages. And it's well known, a period of intense tribulation that many believers suffered for their faith. People who died because they wanted to be faithful to God. And historically, it has been recognized for a good millennium. People were suffering because they decided to remain true and faithful to their belief in Jesus Christ. And this is towards the end of that. Notice that. What's going to happen? Okay, right after. And the tribulation began to subside, incidentally, around the turn of the uh, end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century. What happens? Right after those days, the sun will be darkened. In the United States, it was recognized, and not just the United States, it was all the way Canada down to Mexico. And of course, this is where much of the great Second Advent Awakening happened, where people, leaders from all different churches got involved. I have some statistics right here, figures that they were involved, preaching about Jesus coming. They were excited about it, the great Second Advent Awakening, all over different denominations. But right here, when they saw this dark day, the sun was dark, and the moon that evening looked as red as, as it, almost like in blood, it will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Yes, I know some naysayers say, oh, this happens every 33 years. The Leonid shower. But that time was the greatest ever Leonid shower that was ever recorded. They counted, they estimated 60,000 meteorites per minute. Now imagine, have you seen one or two shooting stars? And it's always like, wow. Multiply that by 60,000 per minute, and you know what an impact it had on people. They said, here clearly is one of the signs that Jesus predicted himself. So here, the signs that were coming true. People recognized it, and they said, we are moving towards the end, folks. Let's get serious. And people began to dig into, their, into the word. Verse 31, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. There's another, another important thing. When Jesus comes, will it be secret? No, it will be loud. It'll be audible, it'll be visible, it'll be worldwide, it'll be cataclysmic. All kinds of things come right in here from studying the book of Matthew. Fascinating. This all deals with the second coming. It specifies that, those, the second coming. Now notice the change now. So we've got Jesus talking about the fall of Jerusalem, primary application. Then he goes to the end of the world, and now he goes back. Let me talk about the fall of Jerusalem. Verse 32, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Summer is near. So you also, when you see all those things or all these things? These. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is saying these. The these always ties in with the fall of Jerusalem. 
The disciples said, tell us when will these things be? And Jesus responds using their own language, these things. And then he talks about the end of the world. But now he's back to talking about these things. So if you want to make a note, from 32 through 35, Jesus is now again focusing back on the fall of Jerusalem. And he says what? Yes, when you see these, all these things, know that it is near at the doors, the falling of Jerusalem, the collapse, the Roman army is coming around. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, there it is again, this, these, this generation shall not pass. Okay? Will by no means pass away till all these, these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Question. How long is a generation according to scripture? 40 years, you're right. That's the general term they use, 40 years. Now, I know there have been some who've looked at this and said, ah, when Jerusalem became, when Israel became a nation in 19 what? 48. Do you remember that? 1948? If you go a generation, it'll take us to what year? 1988. And so early in the 1980s, 1980, 81, there were some people who began to promote books and said, we've got maybe less than 10 years before Jesus is going to come, a generation later. But actually, this passage was dealing with the fall of Jerusalem, specifically. So, when did Jesus utter this? Just before he, he was crucified. What year approximately was he crucified? Generally accepted by virtually all Christians. Early 30s. Some say 31. That's what we hold to. Around 31. Go ahead. Count 40 years. Where do we end up? 70, right. 71, right around there. When did Jerusalem fall? 70. So Jesus was correct. Yes, this generation shall not okay, pass until all these things are fulfilled. Now, after talking about the fall of Jerusalem, he now switches back. Let's look at the rest of the, Now we get to the more exciting things. Now Jesus focuses back. But of that day, language changes. No longer this, these. He goes now to that, those. So it's the A-B-A-B pattern. Fascinating as you dig into the word here. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. The days of Noah, folks, are bad days. Listen, for as it was as in the days before the flood, what were they doing? Eating and drinking. By the way, anything wrong in eating and drinking? No. That was the focus. That was the, that was the, that's where the, everything was fixated on. Eating and drinking. And incidentally, okay, this is a problem we're having right now in, in, in many countries, focusing on enjoying those pleasures, okay, rather than having balanced lifestyles, making sure we have God first in our lives. Marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the son of, the coming of the son of man be. Interesting. The flood came and took them all away. Then it talks about there will be two men in one field. One will be taken and the other left. Taken away? Yes, taken away means they, 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 were, they died. All those who were taken away were those who were not ready, according to the Bible. Fascinating. People say you'll be taken away to heaven. The biblical idea is when you're taken away, you're taken away because you're not ready. I've heard of a man who's writing a book saying, I want to be left behind. I don't want to be taken away by the flood. Okay, that's what, so here it's interesting. The biblical concept is those who were not ready were taken away. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. By the way, in Luke chapter 17, write this down. You can read it at home later on. Luke chapter 17, verse 26 and 27, it says, Jesus says, as it was, listen carefully, in the days of Lot's. Hmm. 
Think about that for a moment. Maybe we should look at it and take a few minutes to reflect. Because you see, it's an important question. Are things getting worse on planet Earth? Yes, they are. The question is, in which area can we prove it unquestioningly? I believe in the area of moral collapse, there is ample proof across the board. Luke chapter 17, verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be, right? Now go down, we read that, go down to verse 28. Add verse 28. Likewise, as it was in the days of whom? Lot. Both Noah and Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Nothing wrong in and of themselves, but that was what they were fixated on and not balancing their lives by, and making sure that God was first in their affections. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. I'm aware that there are some who are saying the problem in Sodom was the lack of hospitality. Yes, they were not hospitable people. There's one thing in Ezekiel that talks about that. But it's interesting, both in the Old Testament and in the New, it talks about the people in Sodom in in biblical language, they were going after strange flesh. King James language. Okay? And I'm not sure if I need to say more. Just uh, maybe I should talk about my own country. I'm from South Africa. And South Africa... What's, what's the kindest word I can use for my... I'm still a South African. I have a South African passport, so let's make sure I say this nicely. South Africa claims to be the first country in Africa to do what? To publicly authorize, what do you think? Gay marriage. And what day did they make the proclamation? December 1, 2005. By the way, what is December 1? Anybody know? Ah, you haven't been involved in promotion of things that I, uh, I've had the privilege of doing. Took students with me on walks. That is World AIDS Day. You're right. World AIDS Day. On World AIDS Day, my government said, from now onwards, homosexuals can be married. Okay? We're the first country in Africa to do that. And if, if you go to other parts of Africa, in certain other countries in Africa, guess what? You are executed for that. Okay, interesting. Moral decline in the world, incredible moral decline. Let's go back to Matthew 24. I need to just uh, go and read that uh, Luke and just mention that. Now, please don't misunderstand me for a moment. Maybe I should clarify here because, because this is crucial. You know, I don't want people for a moment, the area in which I enjoy teaching and sharing and ch- chatting is in the area of how to live for the Lord. We want to learn to know how to live for His glory. Isn't that right? And we don't want to in any way, in any shape or form, folks, be condemnatory. So I'm just going to take a little tangent here. I hadn't planned to do this, but I feel the Lord impressing me here. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. We've got to make sure we have everything in balance. 1 Corinthians 6. I'm so glad that passage is there, inspired by God. I thank God that He inspired the Apostle Paul to put this here, because now... Whether or not you even pull your toes in, I'm going to step on them. Yes, God is going to do that. All right, remember that? Let's read this in context. This is why I love the Bible. The Bible is always balanced. Isn't that right? The Word of God is alive and sharp, piercing to the inside of our hearts. 
Okay, let's remember that. Don't forget that. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. And we'll go back, back to Matthew in a minute. But look at that. Now, Paul is talking to, to the Corinthian church. Okay, this was not a perfect church. Anybody a member of a perfect church here? No, I don't see it. Okay, so let's not get too hard on them. <laughs> we all know we are, have room to grow. Listen to what he says to them. I'm going to go down to verse 9. Verse 9. Okay. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit what? The kingdom of God. Okay, now, by the way, Paul, who are the unrighteous? Are you ready for this? Listen to what he says. Do not be deceived. In other words, don't think you're going to get off scot-free. That's why I said, don't matter if you're going to pull your toes in. Here's Paul speaking right now. God speaking through Paul. Neither fornicators, and we might say, ah, those people over there, idolaters, all oh, the people down in Africa. Okay? <laughs> Idol worshippers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, and my Bible even has another word, nor sodomites. And by the way, every Bible translation has words that come across with the same concept. They cover both areas, and we're saying, aha, they're not going to get into heaven. Too bad. Hold on, hold on. Listen carefully. Verse 10, nor thieves. Notice Paul doesn't stop. The, 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 the people who put the verses in broke it there after it. It's continued. In the original Bible, there are no verse divisions. So carry on. When he says, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor what? Covetous. Paul puts it all together, folks. Sin is sin in God's eyes. We human beings, we look down on people. They are going to go to hell. God looks down at our hearts and sees that we will too unless we turn to God and repent. Paul doesn't make any difference. So let's be careful. Nor covetous, let's carry on. Nor extortioners, oh, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, I think of the word revilers, slanderers. There's another word we start with a G-O-S. What is that? Gossipers. Ooh, okay. Now for the good news. I'm glad Paul always ends with the good news. Look at verse 11. If you ever read verse 9 to somebody else, make sure you read verse 10 to yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then, and then end off reading verse 11 for all of us. Here is the good news. That's why I love, if you read the Bible in context, it gives you hope. Here is the hope. Paul says, and such, what is the word? Were. Some of you. Now here's my question. English majors, if any of you took English, what does such were mean? Past tense, what does that mean? Are they still? No, no longer, no longer. In other words, they are no longer adulterous. They are no longer homosexuals. They are no longer revilers, no longer covetous, no longer drunkards, no longer. The power of the gospel, folks, can transform the vilest of sinners. I'm glad you said amen. Praise the Lord. He can do that. Now, not only does Paul say, such were some of you, he carries on. He says, you were that way, but you were sanctified. Sanctified, you were made holy. Not you, grew, you became holy on your own. No, you were sanctified. How? Let's read further. Exciting news. You were sanctified. You were justified. Common English term, you were forgiven. You were forgiven. You were forgiven. Carry on. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Good news. Good news. Let's, be, let's make sure we have this in context. When it talks about the end of the world, when things are really bad, 
it seems to me that maybe one of the largest problems is what we call, what is that word now? Materialism. Okay? You know what I'm talking about, materialism? Somebody one day said, it's weird. I, I've, by the way, I have an American passport, so let me talk about us Americans right for a moment here. <laughs> yes, I do. I have two passports. I praise God I've got three citizenships, you know what I mean, huh? Okay, my, my real citizenship is where? In heaven. Okay? So I'm going to talk about us Americans for a moment. I was talking about South Africans there. Let's get this side. All right. Americans, oh, we love things, don't we? We love the latest of things. We have a cell phone, but no, we've got to get the new one that can take pictures now. Hold on, no, that's not good enough. Six months later, the clever people, they knew they could give you this later on, but they let you buy this one, and now you have to buy the next. Oh, now it's a Blackberry. Whoa, where do we spend our money? And somebody one day said, Americans are unusual. I'm speaking about myself now. You know what we do? We buy and we buy and we buy. We cannot hoard it all. All of it is not out of place. And all over the country, guess what sprang up? Storage. <laughs> That's right. He said, Americans are the most interesting people. They haven't found enough place in their huge homes to store everything. So now they buy the places to go and store what they're not using. We. Wow. So be careful. Remember what Jesus, what Paul says to Timothy about money and material goods? What is it? The love of money is the what? Root of what? All evil, folks. I'm going to challenge you again. I mentioned this some time ago. I love what John Wesley said, that wonderful saint of God. He loved the Lord. He challenged us to live, not just to believe mentally. He said this, earn all you can. Step two, save all you can. Unfortunately, too many may stop there. Then he said, step three, give all you can. I heard three amens today. I know you're still born, true, died in the wool Americans. Let's try it one more time. Okay. John Wesley said, what? What did he say? Say it with me. Earn all you can. Number two. Correct. And number three, for God's glory, do what? Give all you can. That's right. That's the challenge, folks. So we might look down on others, but we are in danger of making materialism our false god. Let's think about ourselves. Danger. We're talking about science. Let's go back to Matthew. I had to go on that tangent to balance things because I wanted to make sure we don't take things out of context. Let's finish the story of Matthew. Here we were in Matthew chapter 24. We're down now to verse 43. The caution, the warning. We're getting to the end now of our message. Now, a few more passages I want to share with you. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be what? Ready. Why? For at such an for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the idea of the thief in the night. Sudden, unexpected. Jesus is coming unexpectedly if we are not ready. So the challenge to you, the challenge to me is to do what? Live ready moment by moment, step by step. Let's go to the beautiful promise in, in the wor words of Jesus. By the way, the rest continues now, but the parable. So here we have an ABAB. The first verses 4 through 20, the fall of Jerusalem. Second set of verses 21 through 31, 
dealing with the second coming, 32 through 35, dealing with the fall of Jerusalem, and then from 36 right through through 44, talks about the end of the world. But you know, you might say, but isn't the fall of Jerusalem a prototype, a type of the end of the world? Yes, you're right. Yes, but in its primary application, it's the fall of Jerusalem. Don't say, this definitely means that. You can say, a secondary application of the fall of Jerusalem we can apply to the end of the world. You've got to be, but that's only secondary application. So let's be careful how we apply that. And the reason for my caution is because some have gone to Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 in its primary application. And I want you to read this at home. Don't read it now. Just write it down. Isaiah 65 and 66 in its primary application. That was God's wish and will for Israel, literal Israel, the Jewish nation. If they returned to him in faithfulness, he was going to do all kinds of magnificent things for his people. And it says there, yes, if you live to a hundred years of age, you will be considered a child if you die at a hundred. Wait a minute. And some people say, oh, that's the new earth. It's a secondary application to put that onto the new earth. And so be careful. Make sure you understand primary application. And then when we get to the new testament, then we can see now which things can we carry over. Because there will be, will there be any death in the, in the world made new? No. And Revelation 21 says it clearly. There'll be no death there. Yet Isaiah 65 says there will be death. So in the primary application, it's Isaiah 65 and 66 are talking about promises to literal Israel if they would return faithfully to God. They didn't, unfortunately. They said, we have no king but Caesar, and they had Jesus crucified, and then the gospel went to the whole world, and we are all now part of spiritual Israel, God's people. And so we look forward to that new heaven, new earth, which in Revelation 21, 22, talk about there will be no death, neither sorrow nor crying. Let's go now to the words of Jesus in John 14. Beautiful passage, so well known. Some of you who might have had the privilege of learning this could probably recite it by heart. But let's go there to remind us of the words of Jesus. Here is his promise. We trust him. We know we can believe and faith put our faith firmly on these clear words of Jesus. And he even says, don't be worried. In the New King James, let not your heart be what? Troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are what? Many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus guarantees that, folks. And and in in the book of Acts, when he went up into heaven, the angels confirmed that in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. What did they say? This, in the King James, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. We have the guarantee of Jesus, the confirmation of these heavenly angels. Jesus will come back. You don't have to worry. Yes, I'm not saying for a moment things are going to be easy. I'm not minimizing some of the trauma that we have been facing on planet earth i don't want to minimize that time will come when things are so terrible that we feel like we can never survive so i want to challenge you focus on jesus folks focus on christ don't focus on the crisis we know at the end of time sad news people who might not have focused on christ might have been focusing on other things, maybe materialism or money or whatever it may be, will not be ready. We might have our own gods. There are going to be two groups of people at the end. But I want to challenge you to be in the right group.
There's a short phrase I'd like you to memorize. Christ will come back. So let's live right on track. You want to say that with me? Christ will come back. So let's live right on track. One more time. Christ will come back. So let's live right on track. Incredible things are happening around the world. And sometimes the danger to you, the danger to me, is to focus and to read and to watch. I know I fall into the trap sometimes to read more Time magazine than the most timely magazine ever. The Word of God. Sometimes we spend so much time watching the bad news, we never get to the good news. That's the danger. So here's my challenge I've made before, and I make it again here in this setting. Folks, how many of you, now don't be afraid to tell me, I want to see a quick show of hands. How many of you spend on average 15 to 30 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes per day with the bad news? Reading newspaper, magazine, television, whatever it may be. Let me see your hand. I'm going to get a quick idea here. I know you're a lot of busy people. Hmm, yeah, that's a good, maybe a third to whatever. Here's my challenge. If you can spend 15 to 30 minutes a day with the bad news, make sure you spend at least 15 to 30 minutes a day with the good news. Get to know the Lord. Focus on the light, not focus on the darkness around you. Very, very vital for us as Christians, folks. Or anybody who wants to live right on track. You know the two responses at the end of time, by the way. Write them down. You'll find one in Revelation, the sad response of those who are not ready. It's in Revelation chapter 6, and it's very clear in the context. Revelation 6, 14 through 16. When those who have not accepted Jesus, not believed and lived for him, they will say, rocks and mountains fall on us. Those who do believe in Jesus, you find the response basically in Isaiah chapter 25 verse 9. Fascinating. While the the unbelievers, those who've turned away from Christ, who call on the rocks to fall on them, the believers, Isaiah 25 verse 9, will call to the rock of ages. And excitedly they will say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. It's a different calling for a different rock. It all depends on who you put your faith in. Let me share with you my own conversion story. You know, I was born and raised. I was privileged. I thank God that I was born and raised in a Christian family. Now notice I did not say I was born Seventh-day Adventist. No one is born Seventh-day Adventist. Did you know that? Hmm. You might happen to be born in a Seventh-day Adventist family, but you can only be born again as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You see that? So I was born in an Adventist family and uh, when uh, studied a little bit and got interested and when my friends were going to get uh, give their lives to the Lord, I just decided to hop into the tub with them. It's called baptism by peer pressure. Ever heard of that? You know the dangers, okay? And so when your peers go another way, guess where you also go? Sad. I did not make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. But I thank God he was so patient with me. Oh. So what happened? I went and studied theology four years. And after studying theology for four years, I still hadn't really given my life to the Lord. Can you believe that? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible, as in daily commitment, walking with Jesus because I love him. And then a story, quick story here. I went down to Cape Town, South Africa, 
And while I was down in Cape Town, South Africa, I was down visiting my friends. I was about to come to the United States. I went to say goodbye to my friends. I was living in Johannesburg at that time. And what happened? While I was there, I heard the news. My mother, I love my mother. I called to talk with her on the phone and I said, sorry, Joyce is not here. They've rushed her to the hospital for an emergency. And so I said, okay, what's wrong? Oh, we don't know. We don't know. Where is she? Just rushed to the hospital. We didn't have a telephone. We just moved into a new apartment. Couldn't get a hold of my dad. And I said, Lord, you know I love my mother. I could get home. And like a typical young guy, I had no money. I had, hit, I had to hitchhike back to a thousand miles. I said, Lord, I need a ride. That was Thursday. Friday, my cousin said, hey, Saturday night, we're driving one-third of the distance up. You want to go with us? I said, yes. 300-mile journey. Next morning, I got out of the, like, we got to like 5 o'clock on a Sunday morning, drove through the night, and I said, they said, hey, come and spend the day with us. I said, no, no, Gerald, I've got to get back home. I've got to see my mom before she dies. Because I didn't know what it was. And so I stood on the road and I prayed. I said, Lord, have you heard of foxhole Christians? <laughs> When the bullets are flying, suddenly you appeal to God. I said, Lord, <laughs> please, please, I've got to get home to my, to my mom. Get me a ride. And there I stood. I remember looking at my watch. And within less than 20 minutes, I saw a car stop, pull over. And I looked. I, I didn't run because, you know, it was a Mercedes-Benz. It looked like it was new. So I figured he wasn't stopped. I mean, since when do Mercedes-Benz's brand new ones stop for hitchhikers on the road? So I stood there and the guy waited. And I looked around. Nobody else, you know. Okay. So I ran up there and I said, excuse me. He said, don't you want a ride? Well, yeah, <laughs> I do. Lord, I asked for a ride. I didn't ask for Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> so he said, hop in. I said, where are you going? He said, Johannesburg. I said, thank you. And as I sat down in the car, it was so new. I sat down, I literally sank into those plush seats. So I felt I was sinking in. It felt like the sides became armrests almost. And I sat there, I said, wow, Lord, a new Mercedes Benz? Wow. But I turned to the driver, how old is your car? He said, I bought it brand new four months ago. Yes, Lord, it was new. (laughs) Wow. And you know what? The Lord was trying to get through to me. I was what somebody might call a gospel-hardened kid. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? God has to reach us where we are. And as I was driving, I thought I was sitting there. The driver turned to me after a few minutes. He said, but after five minutes, by the way, do you have a license? I said, yes. I didn't know why he asked. He stops the car. He pulls over. He said, take over. Take over. I mean, you know... I said, yes. So I jumped behind the wheel and I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I had just gotten my license two months before. He didn't ask me. (laughs) He hadn't said, when did you get your license? He just out of the blue, do you have one? And I sat behind the wheel and I was so nervous with a brand new Mercedes Benz. I put it into third gear. I knew it was a manual. I fortunately had learned to drive with a manual and I pulled away and I thought, what's wrong with this new car? And I pulled away. And I waited for the gears to get to the place where I knew it's going to sound. Uh, I'm going to change to second, 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour. I thought, what's happening with this car? Around 45, 50 miles an hour, I, I realized I needed to change. And then it struck me. <gasps> I was in third gear. The driver was so kind, he didn't say a word. And here I found myself behind the wheel, learning to drive. A brand new Mercedes Benz driving home. And I said, thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for being kind to me.
God answered my prayer in a magnificent way. Oh, that was just the beginning. I began to get bold around this time, and I said to the guy who happened to be a Muslim, I, we got acquainted, and I said, by the way, do you mind? I have some cassettes with me. <laughs> he said, no. So I pulled out my Christian music, and I popped it into his uh, player, and I thought, this is, this is an incredible answer to prayer. Not only do I get a Mercedes-Benz, it happens to be new, I happen to be driving it myself, and now I can sit and listen to Adventist music, I say Adventist, these were Adventist singers, okay? Some Adventist singers and my, some of my favorite music and I'm driving thinking, wow, thank you, Lord. The driver turns to me and said, by the way, are you hungry? <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, I am. I'm hungry. He said, why don't we stop at the nearest place? Let's buy some food and I'll take care of you. Wow. Lord, thank you for bowling me over with your incredible grace. Thank you for showing me that you care for me. Yes, Lord, I only turned to you when I needed you desperately. I have ignored you, Lord. Thank you for showering me with your kindness. That evening, that guy, we, there was, there was, he had a guy with him, so we took turns. I drove 300 of the last 600 miles. You know, I just enjoyed myself half of the journey after my cousin dropped us off. We got to the, my home that evening. We lived on the 12th floor. I looked up. I saw the light on. I said, ah, my father is home. And then I looked a little higher. And I said, my father is home. I know that. And I, I looked at my watch. It was 12 minutes to 12 that night. Never forgot it. And I said, Lord, tomorrow morning. God is not unreasonable. It was late. I was tired from driving a new Mercedes Benz. I said, Lord, tomorrow morning. I'm going to start spending time with you every day in your word. And from that night, I've never forgotten, that was the turning point in my life. I gave my heart completely to God. And he began to shower me with blessings that if I began to share with you just a fraction of a percent, you would be here till midnight this evening. I'm not going to do that. But I want to tell you, especially young people, I have one regret about my decision. Only one. Just one regret about giving my heart to the Lord. I wonder if anybody knows what that is. I wish I had given my heart to the Lord years earlier. If only, if only I had given my heart to Him a decade before when I was peer baptized peer pressure baptized. You know what I'm saying? If only I'd lived for him. So much heartache, so much hurt to others, so much hurt to my Lord would not have happened. When I think of my own learning experience, here is what I want to say to you. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. For he says, write down the verse please. Maybe you want to go to it. Here is what I want to challenge you to do. We serve a merciful God. He has been so patient with us. Isn't that true? And this evening I'm going to make an appeal. In fact, our pianist is going to come and play for us a beautiful song. Are you ready for Jesus to come? And so here we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Now notice the last two lines. Behold, what does it say? Now is the accepted time. Behold what? Now is the day of salvation. And I say, young people, some of us might look old just because we haven't dyed our hair today. 
But, but, this is an appeal for everybody. And as the pianist plays, are you ready for Jesus to come? I want you to think seriously. Our deacons are going to hand out very quickly here. There are several of them. They'll take just a few seconds. I want you to prayerfully reflect. The very first question on this card says simply, first thing for you to check off, I want to be ready, parentheses, and help others get ready for the imminent second coming of Jesus. The, word, the reason I use the word imminent, folks, is because we don't know when it's going to be. Don't think I'll put it off. Why do I say that? I shared the story this week. Some of you might not have been there about my only sister, my only sibling, the sister that I looked up to, two years older than I, who had a stroke at the age of 25. She survived the first. Three or four days later, she had a second stroke. She didn't survive the second. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to simply rem remind you of the fragility of life. You know what I'm talking about. We don't know at all how long we have here to make decisions. So read that here. I want to be ready and help others get ready. You see, when you want to get ready, you also want to bring friends, co-workers, colleagues, fellow students. You want them to also be ready for that great day. You want to be ready. You want Christ will come back, so let's live right on track. And you want others to see Jesus in you. Okay? If that is your wish, I'm going to challenge you right now prayerfully. Check that off there. We'd encourage you also to put your name there. We want to pray for you. Our restoration team, we're going to get together. We're going to be going through these cards. If there's anything we can do to help you, encourage you, walk with you, cheer you on on your Christian walk, we want to do that. So if you want to put a phone number or an email there, please do that. We want to challenge you right now prayerfully. If you want to be ready and help others get ready for the imminent second coming of Jesus, please put that down right now. If you need a pen or a pencil, raise your hand. Somebody could probably share with, with you if you need one. So let's see if anybody does. Raise a hand. We've got some extras if you need one. looks like everybody has. By the way, there are other things on that card. You might want to check more than one. We encourage you, if you so choose, to do that. If you want to have personal Bible studies, you can do that. Incidentally, I'll be here until Monday morning, 5.30, when I head out for the airplane. So yes, if you would like to have a chance to chat with me and pray with me, you can check that too. You might have a question or a prayer request. We will take that seriously and uh, be in touch with you. Take a few moments here to reflect on that. Incidentally, the words of the song, have you fought the good fights? Have you stood for the right? Have others seen Jesus in you? That's the key, friends. Okay. Beautiful words of that hymn. Are you ready for Jesus to come? 
We're going to sing as soon as you've had a chance to fill out these cards. We're going to sing a beautiful hymn that captures the joy, the exuberance, the expectation. We've already sung at the beginning during song service. Some of you were still arriving. So we're going to sing, We Have This Hope That Burns Within Our Hearts. Hope in the coming of the Lord. And this evening, as you leave here, again, we're going to ask you to leave quietly, prayerfully. Drop your cards as you leave. But we want to have to sing this beautiful hymn, an anthem of praise to our coming King. So we're going to invite you to stand here right now with us. We have this hope that burns within our hearts. God has been good, hasn't he? I hope that you can be here tomorrow. We're going to wrap up our time together with a special message called the cardiology of commitments. We're going to share the heart of the matter. We're going to talk further about the commitment that we, each one of us, need to make to Jesus Christ. We invite you to bring friends, family, loved ones. They might not have been to any of the meetings, but bring them along, folks, because I know by God's grace they will be blessed by the message of the hour tomorrow. 11 o'clock tomorrow, before we leave today, I want to invite you to kneel with me in the presence of the coming King, to kneel in commitment to our coming King. Holy Father, we have just sung this rousing anthem. We have this hope that burns within our hearts. Hope in the coming of the Lord. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for the promise that Jesus himself made. We don't have to worry. He will come back. Therefore, Lord, by your grace, through your power, and only to your glory, we dedicate ourselves to living right on track so that others will see Jesus through us. We will uplift him. And as we uplift Jesus Christ, he will draw others to him. Father, thank you, thank you for being so merciful, so gracious, so long-suffering, so patient with us. Fallible, faulty, fumbling human beings. Thank you, Lord, for the times when you've overpowered us by your mercy in order to bring us close to you. Lord, forgive us where we have failed. Take us now. Help us to walk in the light, to live in the light, so that others will see the light of the world. Jesus, our Savior, in his name we pray. Amen.